is that sound? Where is it coming from? All I used to around. To associate with. Are so you a numerology you guy? <laughs> when it comes to stuff like that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to identifying <laughs> yeah. people, when it, when it comes to the, when like, it comes to people need a number so I can point them out easily. Like not, not right, let's close the window. <laughs> it's it's like it's it's just like a, a topic of gayness, not gay people. Specific. No, I know. Yeah. So it's like an easy hashtag, like yeah. the LGBTQ like, hashtag. Like yeah, like if I don't know, like if sixty one was the gay number, I'd call him Plink sixty one, and it'd be funny. I guess so. <laughs> what, if, what if you just called it like? What if you just called it like gay one eighty two? Gay one eighty two. I mean, yeah. Twink one eighty two. Okay. There we go. There we go. <laughs> Welcome to extended clip. <laughs> uh, it's the after hours, and after a three week stint of talking about toxic male bro filmmaking god Michael Cimino. Uh, who made three-hour movies about right. men? When, is Michael? I see people like hit Michael Shimino with this film bro tag. Is he? Is, that's just the deer hunter. Yeah, I guess so. No yeah. one's. No one's like even in like the Tarantino. No one. Never, no. One, I never heard anyone be like, "Oh, you gotta check out Shimino, oh, man." I was just using this no. as an intro. No, I know. I'm just. I'm just. I'm just investigating <laughs> questions. I'm just asking questions. <laughs> no, I think you're investigating them. <laughs> you're playing bad cop, bad cop. Exactly. Uh, so to counterbalance that, I wanted to talk about a film by Nicole Hall of Center. She made 80 to 90 or so minute uh, light, dramatic, comedic, kind of Woody Allen-esque films for the ladies. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, reducing her to that obviously is ridiculous. Uh, she's a very individual artist in her own right. But I think Woody Allen is my first comparison to the way that she kind of shapes the drama of her films. These are films where she's kind of just moving characters around and having them talk to each other, uh, different matchups of characters. Uh, and it's... You know, I, I, I'm not usually one to praise that as like screenwriting is like, oh, the characters are so deep, you know, <laughs> but to pull something like that off, you do have to have very detailed characters with very compelling performers as the best Woody Allen movies or the best Nicole Holofcener movies often do. This one, we have Katherine Keener at the helm and Katherine Keener is often the, the main character. Uh, this one actually took six years to make. Came out in 1996. Uh, Hall of Center had the script in the hands of an agent in 1990. That's how long it took. And then in 96, uh, it was bought by fucking Weinstein at uh, uh, Sundance. And they, they, they screwed the pooch on the release. It barely made back its budget. But it kind of has cult following, you know. Mm. And uh, it made enough money for Hall of Center to keep working. Like all of her movies have, you know, they, they always, they're, they're never hits, but they always come in, uh, under budget and make back what they spent. And, uh, I don't know why there's only six of these movies instead of like 20. Well, I guess it's cause probably she's seen more as a writer in like the Hollywood. Well, she has, Holly she has like punch up stuff and she has writing mm -hmm. credits on stuff that's nothing like her, you mm -hmm. know, authorial work like that awful uh melissa mccarthy oscar bait movie yeah it's uh, like a, can you give me can uh, you remember my name can you remember can you give me an oscar that's what they should call me it. by the name no <laughs> can you ever forgive me 
That's the name of the movie. I don't want to, you know. Uh, <laughs> but I don't let's, know. Get, let's set the record straight. Yeah. Here. How'd you guys like this? You have experience with her films? Yeah. No, I I've seen her uh, Netflix movie, which has kind of a long title that I forgot, with like a Ben Mendelsohn in 2017. Uh, that you know I thought was really good, and I've seen the James Gandolfini, Julia Louis Dreyfus romantic comedy. Enough said a while back, but I remember that being really pleasant. And I really like this. I really like this a lot. And mm-hmm. um, you know, and I said she might be seen in more of the you know the Hollywood bigwigs eyes as more of a screenwriter. But I, I mean, she definitely has a very distinct directorial style. Uh, style. You know, a lot of these things. You know, these techniques being a little bit more subtle than. Uh, you know, we're used to, you know, maybe with, you know, Shimino's big sweeping gestures, <laughs> kind of like uh, her kind of like, I don't know, subtle uh, blocking and, you know, mise-en-scene to convey character emotions, you know, or, or replace that, replacing that for us here to dig into. But I thought this was really pleasant, you know, and a lot of different characters. Good to see some representation on screen. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, it's kind of, you know, more of like, a, I guess... If I, I lived in the night, kind of like the, what do you call it? The, the cinephile fantasy is like, oh, I worked in a, a video store in the 90s and I'm giving recommendations to people. But I guess that's how it really was. That's how some people were really living. You know what I mean? But uh, yeah, the Corrigan character is good at that. Yeah, Kevin Corrigan is fantastic here. He does get the and Kevin Corrigan credit at the end of the <laughs> uh, opening credits. And it is a very like hip movie, you know. You have that score by Billy Bragg and like uh, songs by Yola Tango and stuff like that dropped in. And I think it just rides the line of being like sincere enough to not suffer from that. Yeah. Because it, it is weird that that kind of 90s soft indie aesthetic has something of an insincerity to it so to make a movie that is as sincere as this even if the characters are slightly disaffected like keener or uh corrigan's characters are or at least you know hesh and her uh fiance how just like in their own world they are kind of rather than the hipster disaffection <laughs> well i mean that like um brings up like a good point like in terms of writerly like style i mean you brought up woody allen for me i was really and i was talking to you about this beforehand i was really feeling the classic james l brooks touch with this i mean not nearly as like tightly constructed like plot wise but just like the attention to detail and character and also the way she directs here, just like giving a lot of room for the actors to breathe and like feel, fully soak up their performances mm-hmm. I got. And like this in particular felt like um, a, a great like analog to uh, Terms of Endearment, like the cold open in particular of uh, – the two girls in this like starting off like very young looking at the joy of sex and just how it then sort of like pairs that with the ending of them like coming together at the wedding even though there's not like as much like plotty detail there's like kind of a clear like through line of their uh relationship and like being apart and then like coming together again that i think like and like a female uh, centric quality that like definitely feels like Brooks to me. No, I, I was going to say like there's a Brooks quality, but I guess the one difference between them and I think is what stands out as kind of like her big auteur technique 
is that she's very succinct with her scenes. A lot of very like short yeah. scenes mm-hmm. that like that do allow like actors, you know, agency and stuff like that to explore. But like the scenes themselves are just very short and like she doesn't really aim for like these uh I don't know, kind of like these emotional crescendos that L. Brooks aims for. I mean the yeah. shortness to me, I think it like I, I it fixates on particular moments. Like yeah. I think when uh Keener is like um sort of uh discovering uh that uh Corgan is like ghosting her they're like I forget what scene exactly it is but it's like a little beat in like the the line of her like following him where it's just sort of that and like her like like you register the disappointment on her face and while it's like what you're saying a different style to the big sweeps that Brooks will do with his moments I think it's like a similar little uh yeah. little slice of the character that Brooks yeah. gives you but in in a different fashion. So I I just want to like lay it out for anyone who doesn't know what this movie is at all or anything yeah. like that since we are talking a little abstractly about it. But there there's really no need to go like in painstaking detail through the plot or whatever. Um but Kathleen Keener, the main character, uh she's a social worker and uh she's, you know, uh, going through it as her best friend is, you know, getting engaged, uh, and she has this tryst with Kevin Corrigan, a loser who works at a video store, loves My Bloody Valentine, uh, is a gore enthusiast, uh, and also a very, like, prickly writer, kind of very <laughs> difficult kind of guy, uh, who constantly messes up. And as I said, yeah, she kind of just maneuvers the characters around back and forth in as as many combinations as possible to, like, make sure, uh, I don't know, each interaction, you kind of learn something on both ends without it being too on the nose about, you know, character development, you know? No. I mean, by the way, I just wanted to say the Netflix movie is called The Land of Steady Habits, which sounds a little wordy. I think it's a really good title if you watch the movie. Yeah, exactly. It's about like, it's about people in the Northeast taking them pills. You know what I mean? Also good weed smoking in that movie. (laughs) There's weed smoking in, I think, I'd have to revisit Lovely and Amazing, but there might be toking up in every single Hall of Center movie. Yeah. So she's certified stoner. We get Nick Nightingale, you know, smoking the the ganj. That's who he was. Fuck. Todd Field. Yeah, Todd Todd Field, Field, a.k.a. Nick Nightingale from Eyes Wide Shut. Oh, damn. No wonder. Because I had only seen this movie once, and I'm like, this guy lives with me. This guy, (laughs) like, who is this fuck? No, yeah. And I think the, the enjoyment of the movie, seeing these characters interact and how they deal with you know each other's problems and whatnot and how that comes to a roost and so that is the enjoyment so it's like i don't know movies that feel like when they have like these scenes that feel too heavy on character development you don't have that issue here because it's all about just kind of being with the characters seeing their day-to-day you know a lot of their uh with keener a lot of their romantic failures and whatnot and uh you know, just kind of living with that. It's not some, it's not Pirates of the Caribbean or something where there's some big sweeping plot. I also think that her avoidance of those like very clear kind of development or plot point scenes, although major events happen on screen, she depicts them very plainly, I think. Yeah. Um, But it's evident in the way the film starts because yeah, you have that like framing of having them as two young girls, but then it just starts like I, the next yeah. scene is just one walks into the cafe, starts talking to the other. Uh, it feels obligatory. And then I was reading up. 
there was an interview that she did with our boss, uh, Eric Cohn, uh, <laughs> CEO of IndieWire, uh, about like looking back at the making of this movie. And yeah, she said she had no idea how to start the movie, and she found the idea to have kids like super cliche, but she also just wanted it to start like that. So she needed to just throw something in front, which was the kids, which I think does set the scene very well for just like the the length of the friendship and how that plays into like how much we know about this relationship at the core. Yeah. Also, we should say Anne Hesh, a working like studying to be a therapist, working as a therapist, and uh, one of her clients is Big Pussy uh, from The Sopranos, <laughs> who claims to see demons, which is fantastic. <laughs> I like how like moments of like characterization are just little flashes like that. Like I think that opening scene of them as uh, girls is like a perfect example of it because it's like just a little bit en- enough where it's not like. Oh, like we're learning about sex and like that's yeah. going to relate to relationship. De- it's not drawn out enough for you to like like to for it to be clearly like explaining something. But throughout the film, there are just like little moments like that where it's like the casualness of them mentioning previous moments in their friendship and their relationship always feels just like, I don't know, just naturalistic and yeah. real as opposed to like this is giving you detail for any type of like plot point. No. Yeah. And like, kind of like with uh, certain tensions and like uh, problems that happen throughout the film, like, like you said, are kind of like almost set up and kind of like one kind of short scene, kind of like the idea. I like the scene where Catherine Keener's calling Anne Hesh and Todd field while they're uh, having sex, something that she does kind of multiple times throughout the movie. (laughs) And timing or is she just, always calling (laughs) (laughs) exactly right and um she's uh you know going you know going off on her answering machine being like oh look at like like my sponge while they're trying to get it on and it's you know introduces like all right like the engagement and like this you know the possible marriage is gonna put a you know a small rift between their friendship they're not gonna be as close as they used to be and then kind of the following scenes between them kind of just explore that tension rather than uh I don't know, building up to like some sort of reveal or whatever. Yeah. Also for me, I mean, I think that like the specificity of the characters and everything like builds to like, I mean, it's one thing to tell like a very nice story and like how and that, but I think the juxtaposition between the two characters like brings out a larger, like more universal, like sort of anxiety about relationships where it's like, it feels so true. The element of like, when you're progressing further into commitment, sort of like being afraid of the routine aspect of it and missing sort of like the single side of like unique new experiences. I mean, a lot of which are failures and like unpleasant, like Keener goes through, but I don't know. It is something so detailed and unique, but I think expands to something that anyone who's dated and things can relate to. I think it's also an incredibly even handed film for it being like a girl movie quote unquote. (laughs) Uh, Looking at it from the perspective of field and Corrigan, you know, like that is more nuance, like in terms of like, if you're breaking, uh, I guess, you know, the, the guys of that milieu down to two types of guys, that's so much more of a nuanced dichotomy than you would see in, the filmmakers that are comparable to her who are often men. 
I don't know. I, I I feel like Hall of Center, obviously, she had so much time to refine the script over time uh, that she even says, like, she started identifying with the Keener character. And by the time she got the film made, she saw herself more as the Anne Hesch character mm-hmm. uh, because she had been married by then. And I think her ability to kind of go beyond personal experience for the sake of point of view is like very evidently on display here. Um, Even just like crafting Corrigan's character as like the sleaze maestro uh, with those very awful social tics that he does have, you know? No, that's that's a that's a hilarious. It's something I've I've exactly done in real life. Where Absolutely. Like, uh, that's <laughs> I think you already know what scene I'm already gonna list where <laughs> Kathy Keener's talking about her dying cat and uh, Corrigan just re- re- reacts with just kind of like a laughter, just of how sincerely she's taking that. And yeah, I don't know exact. I I see. I can't even really pinpoint the exa- <laughs> like the exact details of when that happened, but I've done exactly that before. But. As you guys were saying, like, yeah, you guys made me made me realize. Well, um, you know, you were talking because we're such a good podcast. When I listen to you guys, <laughs> I even realize things. But like, yeah, this movie is a very diplomatic movie in terms of like point of view. Not even because, of course, like the initial conceit is kind of like these two different women, these Anne Hesh and the Catherine Keener character. But yeah, even through Corrigan's perspective and Field's perspective, they're given uh, character moments that you know, are fleshed out and we, we, we get to in tune with their concerns and, you know, whatnot. And I think there's like a good stretch in this movie where, um, Keener, Keener's basically asking the men in her life to be honest with her. Mm -hmm. And it's, they just basically tell her the worst possible thing. (laughs) 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 Like, like, uh, cause we, we, we haven't really mentioned kind of like the, the friend that she hangs out with, I mm, forgot his course, character duh. name or his actor name. Andrew and Lev Schreiber. Yeah. Yeah, Andrew. Oh, that's Lev Schreiber? Yeah. So yeah, Lev Schreiber, she's kind of like this friend that she used to date who, uh, she's, it's it's apparent that she still has like, you know, little inkling of a feeling for and like, uh, you know, they struggle through their friendship and kind of the terms, you know, they have as, you know, exes trying to be friends and uh and he's like trying to reckon with the things that are wrong with him and going to meetings and stuff mm-hmm. but also very self-centered self-indulgent yeah. and borrows money from her quite often <laughs> uh this is the 90s too she's just throwing multiple hundreds of bucks at him at first yeah. uh he has this phone sex addiction <laughs> <laughs> which that's a wonderful scene where keener draws the line and takes back the money because she realizes it's being used to pay his phone bill for uh cross-country phone sex on the regular (laughs) i mean i love that like i mean again kind of jumping ahead but i don't know it doesn't really matter i think that like i I love how it ends with keener and schreiber where it's like they're seeing each other again but on a casual way it's there's no sense of finality there and Mm -hmm. like you you experience keener's story and like the little bits of her with corgan and then schreiber and it's like her romantic life is obviously a main focus of the plot, but like try like I mean to speak to the naturalism, much like real life, it's like there's not going to be like a hard line conclusion, and I love that absolutely. Much like the movie, you know, I am a sex act. We we reviewed on the podcast. We get a 
a pre-marriage scene that doesn't end with the actual marriage itself. But I think that's obvious. You know, it's not implying some sort of a, you know, <laughs> problem with the the engagement. It's more just to, you know, this is what this movie's about, Keener and Hesh's friendship. So we end on that, you know, right yeah. before they get married. And quite literally about them walking and talking, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she's literally, you know, Keener whispers something into her ear that we don't hear or even says it as the music is swelling up. You can't really hear much of the diegetic sound as they're walking into the church service or whatever um after they have that wonderful scene together at the lake uh the really like still shot at like the water level uh when they're in the water together and keener's just like holding her you know really beautiful shot there um going back to fields uh you know maybe regression uh his character where he like doesn't want to hang out with one of his old friends because he still takes bong hits in the bathroom or something like that. (laughs) But then later when Keener comes over and he's just doing laundry and talks to her, he's just like hitting a pipe while he's doing laundry and Mm. offers it to her. uh, Not in the bathroom though. Yeah, not in the bathroom, in the living room, which is more savage. But... (laughs) Got to restrain. I would imagine that Anne Hesh's character doesn't like him smoking weed, and that's why he said it like that. Maybe yeah, originally, sheepishly. But, uh, but you, you can't tell. You know, you never in Hall of Centers movies, you never know who's smoking <laughs> weed. <laughs> you know, it's something you kind of mentioned. You're kind of getting into like it's like hipness of the movie, kind of like it's '90s. It's it's Yola Tango songs, and of course, you know, movie we previously reviewed on the podcast book of life kind of also reflects that milieu in a much different way mm-hmm. but it's like it got me thinking like is like 90s indie seems to be kind of tied to kind of like 90s new york independent filmmaking maybe just independent in general in a way that i can't really think of any other genre movie correspondence anyway like there wasn't like you know new york 2010s films that I don't know, reflected on like Arcade Fire yeah. or something like, like that. But I mean, like Yola that. Tango is even involved with like some Kelly Reichardt stuff too, yeah. which is a little later. I mean, technically this is the period between Reichardt's first film and the rest of them. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. There was a weird overlap there with like, maybe like not the very best rock musicians or directors around, but it's cool to see them work together. <laughs> well, yeah, it was yeah. more about like this disaffected milieu. You exactly. Know I mean? yeah. kind of have... Is there a masterpiece in it though? I don't know. I mean, I think how Hartley's work. Is there like a how Hartley movie with like pavement in it or something? <laughs> I don't know. Well, you, you must've loved first cow, right? Old Malcolmus. Oh yeah. The, I forgot. He's a fiddle or yeah. whatever. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that's a movie you see. I like the early funny <laughs> Stephen Malcolmus albums. For a movie you like, you seem to, every time it's mentioned, you're like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> it's a good movie. No, yeah, I know. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> back to walking and talking. Um, yeah, so I like that for Fields' arc. Uh, Corrigan also. His arc is kind of a regressive one as like the the ticks we mentioned, you know, basically kicks Keener out of the apartment uh, when she's probably going to hook up with him the first time uh, because he feels like writing. And then the second time he leaves when uh, Anne Hesh's voicemail, you know, the only real like kind of rom-com plotty kind of scenario in this whole thing. Uh, and Hesh leaves a voicemail where she refers to him as Keener did as the ugly guy, uh, which is when he finally ghosts her. 
See, I mean, maybe maybe this is me being shallow or whatever, but that that'd get me going. It's like Dude, I, the ugly I'm, guy takes the win. Yeah, if I'm <laughs> the ugly guy, I'm doing something right. Yeah, exactly. I'm too vain to that would hurt me. I would. I am. I'm the corgi in that situation. I'm. No, yeah. I'm bouncing. No. I need to be the beautiful boy. I mean, yeah. yeah, I wouldn't like it, but I think I'd probably stay. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it is yeah. fucking Catherine. Uh, yeah, I, like, I do. I would. I do want to rub her stomach, in the, uh, <laughs> such as uh, Corrigan does in this movie. Very but. funny when he rubs her stomach. <laughs> uh, yeah, hard not to talk about how like. You know, certain movies are affected by the fact that you just want, like, the lead to be your girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know what, what can we even say about no, that. No, we don't say anything, because that's not film analysis, critique, anything like that. It's just something uh, you say, and you move on. <laughs> Put the blinders on. Oh, I, I love the, like, dramatic arc, then, that Field and Hesh have, where... He has this mole, you know, uh, Chekhov's mole. In the first act, he doesn't get it checked out. So in the third act, it leads to them almost breaking up. So she's insistent that he gets this mole checked out. He gets it checked out, removed, put it in a jewelry box and gives it to her. And this humorless bitch. <laughs> Frankly, I, I every time I see this movie, I'm just like, come on, it's a good. That's it's a good funny. Gag. That's yeah. a good bit. But maybe yeah. that's me relating too hard to the to his character. Maybe thinking that I I, I wouldn't do something that grotesque, but it's funny. <laughs> I think it's funny. He might he might have popped it a little too early, right? They're they're meeting up after you know a little. You know, time together. Yeah. He, he pops it out. Not the most intimate restaurant either. Yeah, it's yeah. Well, yeah, and it's like you know, it's kind of you pull your dick out too early. You've you pull re- a pee fairly. <laughs> yeah, you've, you've really fucked up. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't think there's I don't a correlation think that's there. Comparable. But anyway, <laughs> I, I do you pull like your that. penis out too early. All right, yeah, man. That's, that's not a. <laughs> I, I do like that. How crowded this restaurant is, though. Like each table is just like two feet apart and it's fully crowded and uh yeah so they're just having this kind of not full-on whisper fight because it doesn't feel gimmicky either but this very restrained (laughs) near breakup scene uh i think is played out quite well no yeah i think that's that's something that's done a few times throughout the movie where Hofstner's very aware of other people who are in this scenario and kind of involves their loud conversations as kind of, you know, being embarrassing for the other character. Of course, you know, the other scene where Keener berates Corrigan for not uh, calling her back and she kind of yells at him in front of the, damn, that guy's got a reputation. And he just goes, <laughs> mm-hmm. you fucked me in the video store, you know? Yeah, exactly. Hottest girl in the video store comes in and yells at you for having sex with her. What do you do? You win. You go back. <laughs> you go retire back to- from the video store a king. <laughs> <laughs> you, you do what he did. Go back to your ex-girlfriend. Live the trad lifestyle. Exactly. <laughs> that is what he did. He went and went uh, dwarf bowling with his ex-girlfriend. Yeah, that that's that was the thing. He was a little too... like I liked Corrigan and definitely one of the more relatable characters, but he was just a little too random with it. A little too <laughs> excited about yeah. the dwarf bowling. Yeah. <laughs> Although I guess I would check that out. I don't know. That is like as pure as exploitation gets. If the yeah. dwarves are okay with it. Oh wait, speaking of which, <laughs> this is like kind of, this is a weird offshoot tangent. Go but, for it. Um, there is like in high school, I forget what uh, what it was. I was in a creative writing class, and uh, my teacher 
for whatever I was writing, it had like dwarves in it. Um, and she was talking about like the little people um, in general. And she was telling me there's an all dwarf cover band of Kiss called like Little Kiss. I'm aware. <laughs> Just it's similar. It's similar to Dwarf Entertainment. It's funny. <laughs> I, I would I've see looked. Little I've looked up pictures of them, and it is like, I I get it, man. That's a hustle. That's... I watched. I watched Little People Big World when it was airing on TLC. Oh yeah, I forgot about that show. Also, I mean, I've I don't know. I've defended cockfighting before, even though I, <laughs> even though you know, I thinking it over. <laughs> it's, on, man. Well, that's what I'm saying. I'm rescinding, you know, previous endorsements of that. But wait, did you endorse cockfighting? What during the Heaven's Gate episode? Possibly. I don't, I, I don't think. I think we were pretty <laughs> harsh on the animal abuse. Uh, Not well, actually, but yeah. like <laughs> it's you know. I feel so episode. bad for the animals thirty years ago. Yeah, my right. Heart, my heart really goes <laughs> out to them. Yeah. This is truly you <laughs> at the Corrigan cat moment. Yeah. I guess I mean, I'm not going to yeah, eat that's... rooster and horse for dinner tonight. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, that is. I think you hit on to something, JT. I, I remember I was. <laughs> he feels no sympathy for animals. <laughs> I, and I like. I see or that's empathy. that's the thing. It's not. I don't even dislike them. It's just like I don't have that that caring quality for them. You know what I mean? It's like uh, I I think you know when I was saying you know story similar to him laughing at a cat dying. I've done something like that, but I remember. One time I was over at a girl's house and like the dog was like all over me and I kept, you know, being like that. I think I kind of like didn't got like, kick it, kick it. But like, I think I backed it off with my feet and she got really upset. And I'm like, come on, it was, it was all fucking over me. Control the dog. So I don't know. I don't know. That's a very telling. <laughs> <anime. Yeah. laughs> I, I didn't sound that hard. I'm making it sound like I'm a hardliner yeah but, for whatever yeah. it's worth malcolm has always been very sweet with my dogs yeah exactly i'm a, I'm, I'm such a fucking sweetheart <laughs> not as sweet as jt but <laughs> see that's the th- it's a competition the sweet <laughs> that's that's why that's why i never get involved you know people said it seems like you're faking it it's like no i like the dog all right this is <laughs> yeah no can we uh, end this episode <laughs> no I'm more things i wanted to talk no, about I'm this is a very about, deep yeah, I'm movie yeah, like, yeah the more i think about it, it's like jesus she's sh- she crammed so much into this 86 minute movie that also mm-hmm. feels like purposefully like kind of slow, you know, and yeah. like mm-hmm. literally is of people walking and talking for the most part. Uh, but there are so many things going on. There's also the waiter at the cafe who mm-hmm. flirts with Anne Hesh and, you know, he sees himself as something of a thespian. And so he invites her to his play and they like drink out of brown bag liquor bottles outside of the theater after as she, you know, gets uh, tempted uh, into the the single life of that hip scene as well. I mean, I love little moments like that where it's like with Anne Hesh, it's like focusing on almost infidelity, which I think it like in and of itself is like, I don't know. It's something where it's like you can like from Hesh's perspective, you can spin it as something. Oh, it's totally innocent. I was never going to fuck this guy. But like watching the scene play out, it's just like, oh, it just makes my skin crawl. Just yeah. like imagining a partner of, of mine just doing that. It's like that's not something I feel comfortable with. Yeah. I mean, not to, you know, we've given a lot of press lately, but Kaveh Sahadi's show about the show, you know, not, not to quote him, but. Uh, adultery is something that you know you wouldn't want your spouse doing with another you know as he sends that poem to a young, <laughs> young fan of his so that is it's almost worse right kind of sharing like these 
you know, sweet moments of drinking, you know, bag liquor on steps, you mm-hmm. know, just the simple parts of life, you know, thinking of your partner. Yeah, she has sex with, with her husband multiple times, but she doesn't have a moment as romantic as that with him. Yeah. And she, or I say husband, it ends with her uh, marrying him. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, hey, nobody's perfect. <laughs> I mean, it's just interesting. Like, I like a focus, like, in a more plotty film, it would be something that, like, and watching this, I was like, oh, she's going to fuck someone else. And I think it's more interesting and more nuanced to not have her fuck anyone and to focus on, like, because, I mean, by and large, I feel like most real-life people are not going to be, like, sleeping around and cheating on their significant others. But, like, many people have the experience of, like, a brief flirtation that yeah. is like like kind of in the realm of infidelity it's like an interesting like gray area to explore and mm-hmm. in like such a tiny scene too I've, I've actually never done anything like that <laughs> well you know the work husbands or something like that isn't there i swear there's like some classic director said like you know for an older man a married man flirtation is the only acceptable form of cheating or something like that I don't know. I, I, it sounds like I had a bigger point to give with that, but yeah, I mean, depending on what director it is, that could mean all kinds <laughs> yeah. of different things, you know. <laughs> I mean, sure, there are directors who have done bad things. You know, we shouldn't take their words it's so true. seriously. It's very true. Uh, so, Catherine Keener's cat, Big Jeans, does die, uh, not of cancer, but of falling out the window in a <laughs> devastating, but kind of funny scene i don't know why i find it funny maybe i'm feeling like corrigan so yeah it's it's played for a little laugh you know it's a little but then it's kind of heartbreaking once she like picks up the cat yeah it has the slow fade to the next scene it's like okay this is actually sad i guess yeah maybe i'm too corrigan with it maybe i'm not (laughs) we should get corrigan on the pod yeah he He used to call into uh the best show all the time i mean not that what do you think he's up to (laughs) he's He's a working actor. He's like one of the most, you know, coveted character actors, isn't he? Yeah. I mean, for the sake of getting him out. Yeah, well, for, why the, not? for the sake of him getting on the pod, I would say he's one of the <laughs> if most anyone desired character to... actors. <laughs> if anyone All right, listening he's has one any... in my books. <laughs> he's probably yeah, top five for sure. <laughs> <laughs> the Kevin Corrigan heads are out there and will identify themselves. Who's like the top Rob Riggle? That's top five. Oh god, fuck that. <laughs> in terms of work. In terms of work. Is working no, he has like a contract. <laughs> For Fox NFL, <laughs> or NFL on Fox, rather. Uh, yeah. The bald guy. Uh, oh, uh, the, uh, he's also Rob, right? He's a Rob Cordry. Yeah, yeah, yeah Rob yeah. Cordry. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, now I can only think of him in the Fairly Brothers remake of the Heartbreak Kid, where he has the the little hair on the top of his head. <laughs> he's getting. He gets work though. He gets work. That, oh, he, that boy, that motherfucker work. yeah. is working. <laughs> Hustle He's Nonics. in that show called Billions because he gets a billion <laughs> offers a day. <laughs> Billions. Paul Giamatti, another coveted character actor. <laughs> yeah, I'd Kevin ha- Corrigan, <laughs> Paul Giamatti, <laughs> Rob Corddry, and Rob Riggle. <laughs> the four most coveted character actors in America. <laughs> so maybe we'll hit those four up. <laughs> 
I'd love to have Riggle on the. We'd, it would have to be video. We'd, we'd have to go video for Riggle because the faces. Be... That's where he. That's where he kills. If he finds out that we don't respect the troops, though, it's over in a second. Is, is, he, is he a troop respecter? That's like his whole thing. He's, he's a marine. He was a marine. He was a marine. Yeah, dude. Is he? Is he's like the who's like? That's guy? how he was introduced when he threw out a first pitch at a Dodger game I went to once. It was like you may know him from uh, the NFL on Fox or the Iraq War. <laughs> <laughs> is he the Arlie Ermy of our generation, Rob Riggle? <laughs> oh, that says something oh. about our generation, boy. I, I hope Riggle was a drill sergeant, but he was like funny that he inspired his I troops swear, through laughter. I think he was a sniper. That, oh <laughs> shit! Oh my god, American sniper with Rob Riggle. <laughs> that's like that's you know how like Kutcher got that Steve Jobs movie before the. Um, Sorkin one that we needed to do that like 10 years ago. <laughs> Damn. All right. I just need to, uh, before we sign off here, need to do a little fact check on Rob Riggle's uh, military service. He was stealing Valor. What if we find out that Rob Riggle was stealing Valor? We might, we might have to press against him with full force. I'm on military.com looking at famous veteran Rob Riggle. <laughs> Uh, it doesn't say that he's a sniper, no. But he he was a marine. He was on active duty <laughs> in a, a lot sniper. of countries: <laughs> Liberia, Kosovo, and Afghanistan. He was on active duty as a marine. We'll just leave it at that. Seems to be a Chiefs fan. Checking his Twitter. Jesus, dude. He was like, "Yeah, I was a film major, so I was either going to be Top Gun or I was a either." That's his. I was a film major, so I was either going to be Top Gun when I graduated or going to be a waiter. What? That, I'm looking at his Twitter banner right now. Apparently, he has a new golf game show out called Holy Moly 2. Executive producer Stephen Curry. Of, oh, because uh, Holy Moly 1 was Stephen Curry. Yeah, so Curry's Curry's focusing on the game right they now. They made him put two at the end of it. Yeah, Damn. Curry's beating the Lakers right now, you know, killing that shit, so... We'll have Riggle <laughs> take we'll over have Riggle the on the pod. <laughs> we'll have Riggle take over the golf show. And, yeah. All right. Well, we'll see you next week, Rob Riggle. Then. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That man knows how to ride a wiener. Holy moly! Two the sequel. The balls drop May twenty first on ABC. Be ready.